Thank you for that lovely introduction. I am uh, an alcoholic. My name is Alan Simmons. Hi, Hi, everybody. And I actually come to you from Chicago, though I spent most of my um, adult life in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I recently moved there, and I bring you greetings from the Monday Night Northbrook Big Book Study Group in um, Northbrook, Illinois. <laughs> and uh, my nerves are shot, but if you hoot at me a little, I'll probably calm down. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I needed that. I'd like to start by thanking the committee for asking me to come and share with you here in Atlanta and tell you how excited I am to be here and to be part of this. Um, I was raised up in Alcoholics Anonymous going to conferences like this and roundups and retreats and, um, and I just am so happy to see all of you here participating in this because I know how much it meant, has meant to me in my sobriety. And yes, Dave is a good friend of mine. He's actually my grand sponsor. And I said, so that's a little nepotism, I think, that brought me here. You know, it's uh, all in the family. And uh, uh, let me see now. Uh, Steve gave me a list of thank yous to, uh, so I wouldn't forget. And I noticed his name is at the top. <laughs> Big letters. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to thank him for, so I'm going to skip down. <laughs> George and Marge, I wanted to uh, thank them for bringing me here, and first Kim and Steve and Lindsay and all. Everybody's been so kind. And uh, I would like to also take a minute to uh, introduce you to my husband. He's here with me at his very first conference. We've been married two months and eight days today. <laughs> Jeremy. Now, I want you to know this is not only his first conference, but this is the first time he has heard me talk. <laughs> so, those of you around him, scrape him up off the floor. <laughs> you know, somebody said, uh, if you bring your husband along, you won't be able to tell any lies, but we've only been married two months. So. <laughs> I can still get away with a few things, I think. Um, my sobriety date is Christmas Day, 1980. And uh, when I think about um, the years that have, uh, have passed since that day, I think that there has uh, never been for me a day in my life in sobriety that I would consider a bad day. Now, I've had some bad things happen uh, during that time, and I have learned, as all of you have learned, to live life on life's terms during that time. And sometimes that hasn't been an easy thing to do. Um, and, you know, we have a beautiful program, and it's a simple program, but it's not always an easy program. And, uh, and the things that we have to apply our program to are not always easy things. But I can tell you that uh, the last 14 and some years of my life have been the happiest years of my life and progressively happier in ways that I just couldn't have imagined when I got to you um, 14 years ago. So I'm going to talk about that for a little while and I ceremoniously take off my watch and hope that I can get it done, you know, and get you out of here in less than an hour or maybe we can make it 40 minutes or 30 minutes, or what do you think? Could you make it 20 minutes? <laughs> you know, I thought when, uh, when John was talking about clearing out the room, I thought, well, if I make it really bad, I can clear out the room early. <laughs> I love the people, you know, the people that I've sponsored have helped me so much. I'll never forget one time getting up to speak before a crowd, and a gal that I sponsored sat next to me, and she said, I have only... One, one thing to say to you. I said, what's that? She said, just don't say anything stupid. <laughs> you know, even the people you sponsor sort of cut you down to size, and that's probably a good thing. I do have to say I've never spoken uh, before on a podium where there was trees with little jungle birds behind me. <laughs> what do you think that means? 
And then I saw that black outfit over there, and I worried that maybe I was supposed to wear it. I don't know. Uh, you do things a little differently in Atlanta, but I'm happy about that because, uh, you know, I've been to a lot of different kinds of uh, AA meetings and a lot of different kinds of roundups, and I see that people do things a little differently here and a little differently there. And sometimes I think that's one of the greatest blessings we have in Alcoholics Anonymous is that if we don't like what's happening in, um, in a particular meeting, we can go to a different meeting where we find what feeds us. And uh, I'm happy about that. I'm happy that there's variety in Alcoholics Anonymous. I know what worked for me, and I'll talk a bit about that um, when I tell you my story. Um, but I'm happy that people find, you know, trees with jungle birdies in them and maybe that makes some people feel at home I don't know um, my job is to tell you in a general way what you know what I was like and what happened and what I'm like now and so I'm going to try to do that um, and stay within that framework um, I, I grew up in a little town north of Chicago Glenview which is where I'm from now and, uh, and I had the kind of childhood that I like to think was in many ways idyllic. I had parents who, who stayed together and came home at night. And, uh, um, there, you know, I didn't come from an alcoholic home. I had uh, three brothers and a sister. And we were all kind of crammed together in a little house. And we didn't have much. But we didn't know that we didn't have much. You know, we looked around and we had uh, pretty much what we needed. And... We knew all the kids in the neighborhood. We were a church-going family. And I'm grateful for that now, too. There were long years in my drinking that took me on, on a kind of an orbit, took me way away from that church that I grew up with. Um, but I know that when I came back to you and you talked about God, that that, uh, that, that he touched something deep within me that had started early in my life when I was a little girl and my parents took me to church, so I'm grateful for that. Um, I'm grateful for the kind of family life I had. And I have to tell you, and I'm not proud of this, but when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I complained all day long about the family life that I had. And my father had been to this, and my mother had been too angry, you know. And uh, I'd had a lot of therapy, and I'd found out a lot about the trauma that I'd uh, suffered and so forth. and. Uh, and, uh, and, and that made me kind of self-centered and sad. And, you know, I look back on it now and I know that, um, that it was nothing that happened in that family um, that had to make me that way. It was the way I reacted to the things that happened. And a lot of the things that happened happened in a lot of families. You know, it was a normal family. And, uh, and I had a good, a good childhood and a happy one. Um, however, I was one of those kids who took everything personally. Now, I don't know how to explain that. It just is so that I took everything personally. It's a defect that I had and have still today, and uh, a defect that I have to be aware of and that I have to uh, uh, ask God to remove in me from time to time when I do my 30,000th inventory, which I've done a lot of because I had to. But, uh, but this was me, you know. I just took everything personally. I, I hated that expression, thin-skinned, because I knew that I was thin-skinned. And, uh, um, and I thought everything was a reflection on me. I was self-centered in the extreme, and, of course, the big book talks about that with us, talks about, you know, the, uh, the self-centeredness of our world, and, and that was really me. Um, my parents were religious people. They sent me away to boarding school, to a church boarding school, and at the time I thought they were rejecting me. And I, you know, I mean at some level I knew that this was because they believed that it was right for us to have a church education, but at another level I blamed them for my loneliness and for my fearfulness and uh, for the things that, um, you know, the, the negative feelings and stuff that came along with going away to school. And so when, I, when it came time to uh, go to college, um, and I should back up and tell you that when I came home from, from, uh, from boarding school, I, it was probably my first year home from boarding school at Christmas time, my father said if you were old enough to uh, go away to school, you were old enough to have a drink. 
and uh, you know I'll never forget that Christmas I always think it's kind of poetic justice that I finally sobered up on Christmas because I sure started my uh, drinking career on Christmas my father you know with some pomp and circumstance handed me some fruity little drink and I you know took a big slug of that and sort of coughed and sputtered and then suddenly found myself feeling you know at ease and comfortable and you know I'd come home with a chip on my shoulder and resentful toward my family and you know bummed out about having been away at school three months and within three minutes I was gathered up and felt whole you know and I felt like I was funny and I felt like I was in command and I didn't feel like a fat you know boarding school kid that had just come back from a religious boarding school I felt like I was somebody interesting and this is the truth this is the truth you know this is what alcohol did for me alcohol took this kind of empty miserable self-pitying shell of a person and pumped me up and made me feel interesting and comfortable and at ease and uh, and you know the funny thing is over the years that I drank it reduced me then again to what it did for me in the beginning was pump me up and make me feel better and then gradually it sort of hammered me down till when I got to you I was full of self-pity and I was full of remorse and I was you know this fat uncomfortable person I had been anywhere but religious boarding school but you know what I'm saying it just uh, it pumped me up and then it and then it pounded me down and uh, but I didn't know that was what was to come when I first drank I just thought that I had found the solution to the feelings that dogged me all my life and uh, you don't drink a whole lot in religious boarding school they don't give you a lot of um, opportunities to do that um, so I had to wait until I started college before I could really start drinking the way I wanted to drink but I can tell you that the day that I stepped out of uh, our house and started off to college my drinking career really took off um, I, I remember those years as being sort of progressively more hilarious <laughs> you know I just uh, and by the time I was a sophomore I drank every night and uh, by the time I was a junior I was blacking out and uh, you know by the time I was a senior I was so depressed that I thought I would move away somewhere and it must be here's another problem I had maybe you some of you can relate I always thought that the reason I felt so terrible was all those people around me and the place I lived you know I just here I was living in Chicago of all the destituted places and you know the it, it was such a pathetic place even the snow was black you know it just <laughs> and I was working I had decided to become a nurse you know so here I was working at the Board of Health on the on the north side of Chicago and making these grimy home visits trying to give these kids their shots and you know I thought it was my life that was making me depressed I, it never occurred to me that it was the way I was drinking and so I developed early on this notion that if I could change what was happening in my life that I would feel different and I I pursued that notion for years I started out that year was 1973 I started out at that point moving uh, to North Carolina and many of you I'm sure have heard of the geographic cure I became the queen of the geographic cure I moved to North Carolina thinking that the thing that would really fix me would be blue sky mild weather trees you know in 1973 there was still some of that left in North Carolina um, there's still a lot more there now than there is in Chicago but that was my notion you know I would get out where it was pretty and then I would feel pretty and uh, I had already experienced a lot of the things that um, were to dog me for the next several years I was uh, I was blacking out I was uh, ending up in places with people that I didn't know very well doing things that I didn't feel great about um, I was uh, you know I was going through friends like they were water I mean I just uh, if I got tired and restless I would move on to another set of friends and I would uh, every time I moved I sort of changed my image so that uh, 
so that in college, I don't know how many personas I went through in college, but I remember having sort of the uh, the new college girl look, and then the student nurse look, and then the hippie look, and and then when I moved to North Carolina, I sort of took on the yuppie look. We didn't call it that then. But then when I was tired of that and I was restless and insecure, I took on the hippie look again. And I, you know, I just moved every time I took on a new look. I moved to North Carolina in 1973, and between that uh, year and uh, 19, I don't know when it was, 19, when did I leave there? I don't know, it was years, years later. I counted one time in, in 11 years, I moved 12 times. I was the queen of moving. I was so restless. When I read that part in the big book that talks about restless, irritable, and discontent, my gosh, I thought they'd written it for me. I was restless, I was irritable, and I was discontent. And every time that feeling came to me, I thought, well, I'll just get a new house. Or, you know, I'll just get a new a uh, place to live or I'll move a town over or I'll move back to the old town or I'll, you know, or I'll get some new friends or I'll change my image. And I went, uh, I always say that when I was, uh, when I was, uh, uh, I was a phony in all of these things. I always remember when I was in, into my hippie phase, I didn't know squat about politics and didn't care, you know, I just wanted to look. Because, and then part of the look, of course, was the, you know, the drink and the dope and how that, uh, how that, uh, you know, how that fed my addiction. And uh, so I, you know, I didn't, there was not a whole lot of substance in here. The other thing I heard when I first came to this program that really seemed like it was uh, talking to me was that business about having a hole in your middle where the wind blows through. I didn't have anything in the middle. I was in such a fren at such a frenetic pace trying to change who I was all the time or trying to figure out who I was that um, that I had nothing of substance on the inside and I was scared all the time. Um, and you know, I look back now and I think when you drink the way I drank and you black out every night and you and you know that you can't stop drinking and you're afraid you can't get to work every other day or so because of the drinking. No wonder I was scared. But do you know, I know so little about myself when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous that when people talked about fear, I thought, well, who's afraid? You know, I had no idea I was scared spitless. I just had no idea. And the way that I coped with my fear was to get more kind of frenetic and more bombastic and, and make... I don't know what, make more friends or move again. I just, I met that fear with a certain restless activity. And, uh, and it took me to some strange places and it took me to some situations that I, you know, I had to uh, deal with later in inventories. And that's just the way the fear drove me. When I heard you say fear, I thought of somebody cowering. Well, I had never cowered, you know. I'd just gone out like I was riding a wave. And I didn't know I was driven by fear, but I was. Um, and uh, what can I tell you? I, in my, uh, Steve said something about this uh, earlier. I said for 20 years I was a psychiatric nurse. He said, well, that was fitting. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the truth, you know. I, uh, I, I became a psychiatric nurse, and I know now, looking back, that the reason I chose to be a psychiatric nurse was, first of all, I was a nurse, and I had to be some kind of nurse, and at least uh, that way I was talking to people instead of doing all the other nursey things. But, uh, but the other thing, but the other thing, the other reason I chose psychiatric nursing was, I think, that at some level, I knew there was something wrong with me. And it was a whole lot easier for me to muddle around in your mind than it was for me to look at myself. You see, I could not look at myself, but I could find all kinds of fascinating things out about you, real or imagined, you know, by, uh, by, uh, by talking to you and, uh, try, you know, what is it, trying to be a therapist, what was I doing? You know, I was one lost soul, but I kept, you know, putting one foot in front of the other and, uh, and, the, and my illness got worse. Um, you know, I, I, 
I, in my last job when I was drinking, I took up with people who, I mean, and you know the crowds, the bar crowds. I mean, we just uh, we just kind of moved from one bar to the next, or maybe we would all move in one huge pile over to my house or over to their house. And I, you know, I have snatches of memories of bringing a party home once and the uh, couch flaming up. And I was pretty blasted, you know, and looking over at some guy who was really blasted and sort of nodding off while the couch began to smoke, you know, and, you know, this was the kind of thing that happened in my daily life. And did I think much of it? You know, I didn't think anything of it at all because I was not, I was not uh, in the habit of looking at my life. In fact, I would do anything that I could to avoid looking at my life. So that's the kind of person I was when I uh, moved to my last drunk house in uh, Bynum, North Carolina. I'd moved a lot, and uh, I'd gone to, um, I decided I'd go to graduate school to make myself smart. <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're drinking like that, you'll look to find anything to make you better. Anything but quit drinking, you know, anything but that. So I went to graduate school. In retrospect, I think quitting drinking would have been a lot better idea. But I went to graduate school, and because I had no money, I moved into a shack. Or this is what I told myself. Because I had no money, I moved into a shack. Well, you know, looking back, I realized that I lived in that shack a long time after graduate school. I mean, it was a shack. It was a shack that was built into the bank of a river in a small mill town in North Carolina. And it was a shack of the nature where the sunlight comes up through the floorboards. And uh, there, was no, there was no insulation. And I can remember the winter nights um, just crawling into bed with a bottle and stoking up that stove, just getting it blasting. And of course, you know, by three hours later, the whole thing had burned out and the shack was cold as, as it could be. And I was there, you know, hovered up in the blankets, just living a pitiful life. And, uh, and, uh, and I, there was actually running water in the shack, but there was no um, bathroom. <laughs> So the fellow who was renting the shack to me, believe it or not, somebody rented this shack for me to me for 40 bucks a month, which I believe he was really taking advantage of me <laughs> at that point. I mean, that was in 1976 or something. I don't think, I think that was too much. But anyway, he, he out of the goodness of his heart, took some of that money and built an outhouse for me, which was, had two seats to it. And so that was my high-class outhouse to go with my shack. I mean, this is the kind of life I was living. For a period of time, there was a possum that lived in the shack with me behind the refrigerator. The refrigerator didn't work, of course, so it was unplugged, and the possum lived inside the shack. And I knew he was there because I could see that tail. And I have a recollection of trying to get him out of there, trying to shoo him out and being afraid that he would bite me. So I remember trying to move the the refrigerator out to the door, hoping he'd go out the door with the refrigerator. It's very hard to move the refrigerator because the shack was on pilings. You know, one part of it was in the river and one was on one part of it was on pilings and so it sloped down toward the river. And it's very hard to move a refrigerator on a sloping floor when you're drunk. <laughs> I had accidents in that shack and I would you know, I would go to school trying to figure out a story to explain the black and blue mark over my eye that, you know, that I gathered trying to get back in the shack from a midnight trip to the outhouse, you know. (laughs) That was the kind of life I was living um, toward the end of my drinking when I finished graduate school um, and became a psychiatric nurse. You know, the, I did the one thing, I did finally the only thing I knew that would make my life better. And I really was sure that this would make my life better. Not that it hadn't occurred to me to quit drinking, but I just wasn't, you know, I just thought I wasn't that bad yet. And uh, so I did the only thing that I knew to do that I thought would probably save my uh, 
situation, so I got married. And the guy that I married lived in a shack across the street. He lived down river. I was a little reluctant to um, move to his shack because it wasn't as close to the river, and I thought I had a really idyllic spot. Even though, even though the way the shack sloped, it was clear that we couldn't both sleep in that bed, you know, we'd sort of roll off, roll toward the edge of the bed. So, so grudgingly, I moved into his house when we married. He didn't have uh, plumbing either. And, uh, and I always like to say that I knew my, my uh, life was going downhill, my drinking was taking me downhill when I looked back and I realized that he, his outhouse was only a one-seater. So I went from two seats to one and things were getting worse. I thought it was a fine life. I never, it never occurred to me that there was something wrong with the way I was living. You know, um, I heard Dave say um, early in my sobriety that the uh, trouble with an alcoholic is our inability to see ourselves as we really were. And I can tell you these stories now, and they're kind of funny because they're so stupid. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, at the time, None of that was funny to me, and I took myself very seriously, and I thought it was, you know, I mean, I thought I was doing a pretty good job of managing. I lived with a feeling of um, anxiety, and I lived with a certain shame about my drinking, and um, I really think that getting married was an effort to kind of make myself respectable in some way. Um, and. And that's not to say that I didn't love my husband, though I have to say, looking back, that he only had one oar in the water, and I didn't notice that. <laughs> you know, and, uh, but we were a pretty good match, I guess, um, for each other. And, uh, and I thought we would get married and we would have an orderly life, and, you know, eventually things would get better. I didn't know that you can't cure alcoholism by marrying somebody. You can't cure a bad feeling inside of you by marrying somebody. You can't change how you drink by marrying somebody. You can't change how you drink by going to graduate school. You can't change how you drink by going to a different town or a different house. I didn't know all that. I just was going on the kind of the hope that that was what was going to work. And uh, when I got married, that was kind of my hope that that was what was going to work. Uh, and of course it didn't work. You know the answer to that. I mean, you know how the story went. He, he, I don't think to this day that he's alcoholic. However, he, um, he liked other kinds of recreational medicinal things. <laughs> and, uh, um, and, uh, and so we had a pretty loose lifestyle. And, and there was nothing respectable about it. You know, there was nothing respectable about it. And we had long parties that went into the night and, you know, people that came over and said and did things that, you know, later I was embarrassed about. And I said and did things that I was later ashamed about. And, you know, it was that kind of a, a marriage. You know, I just have a lot of memories of those years of our marriage, and they were not—they uh, were not good memories. Which it certainly didn't make me respectable. I have to tell you that. Um, and so, and so, my drinking progressed. And you know, I remember looking at that Jelinek chart once early in my sobriety, where your tolerance drops, the bottom drops out of your tolerance, and all of a sudden you're just on, you know, knee walking drunk on two drinks, where it used to take you, uh, you know, half a case or whatever. And uh, at the end, I was like that. I could just get—I had no idea what was going to happen when I. Um, when I took a drink and uh, or when I would be able to stop and usually it wasn't for quite some time and I was continued to be a daily drinker and it's hard to go to a mental health center and represent yourself as a professional helping person when you're really suffering and staggering with a hangover almost every working day of your life 
And, uh, you know, the irony of it was they put me in part of the, you know, I had to do part of the alcohol program, too. Part of my program, <laughs> part of the alcohol program. You know, and you can, you can sort of see where this is going. I started working in the alcohol program. They had all these blinking pamphlets around saying, is AA for you, you know. So uh, here, here we're getting to the beginning and the end of this part of the story. Um, I had uh, some children about two years into the marriage, two at once. I didn't know I was having twins, but I had twins. And, uh, and, uh, and that was kind of what rushed me to, my, to the bottom, you know. <laughs> you bring home two little babies, your average drinking alcoholic woman married to a, a pretty uh, loose fellow, and bring home two little teeny tiny babies that have to eat around the clock and try to, and just watch what happens. You know, I came home, started drinking, and uh, drank real heavily for about a year and a half. And the last day that I drank um, was Christmas Eve uh, 1980. And we went to a friend's house for um, Christmas Eve dinner. And I was one of these. I was still, you know, wedded to this notion that if I could look okay on the outside, I would feel okay on the inside. And I really got into this with my babies. I'd get them all dressed up and they would just look perfect. And everybody would say, isn't it wonderful? You have these beautiful babies. And I'd say yes. And somehow I thought that would make me fine. You know, that would make me wonderful, but it didn't. And, uh, you know, I always wanted one of those stories where I ended up at treatment centers and, you know, crashing cars and, you know, flames and all this other stuff. And when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous and I said to my sponsor, I'll never be able to make a talk. What do I have to tell? She said, you tell exactly what happened to you and what it was doing to you on the inside. It doesn't matter what it was doing to you on the outside. Those things were all waiting there for you. And... uh and that you are just uh, fortunate that you did not wreck your car. And I always say I didn't wreck my car, but that last drunk car I had, I never changed the oil for 54,000 miles, <laughs> and it died. Now, I think that qualifies as wrecking your car, don't you? And, uh, you know, that's the kind of person I was. I couldn't open the mail. I didn't want to answer the phone. I was afraid all the time of what was going to come around to haunt me. And... Uh, and that Christmas Eve, I looked at those babies and I looked at that husband, and I can't describe the feeling that I had. We'd gone through the spell where I wasn't going to drink so much, so he was going to be in charge of the booze. And, okay, that, this will work. You just pour me a drink once in a while, and that way I won't drink so much. We went through that for the last year of my drinking. And he was going to be in charge of it, and he'd give me a little dab here and a little dab there. And as soon as he went out to the wood pile to bring in the wood for the for the stove, I'd get into the kitchen and I'd grab whatever I could and I'd upend the bottle, you know, and I'd be in a hurry to kind of get my titer up so that I could uh, get through the evening with him. <laughs> and, uh, and that night we went to a Christmas dinner and we decided it was such an occasion that I should be allowed to have a drink and I had one puny, measly little drink. And I cannot describe to you how much I hated myself. I hated myself, I hated my husband, I hated the people we were with, and I felt sick with anguish about these beautiful babies thinking that what they had was a mother like me who couldn't stay off the booze, who couldn't, you know, keep, you know, my mind straight from one hour to the next. I had, uh, my babies were beautiful babies, they were little blonde baldies, and I remember one time hauling off and slapping my son. And he was a, you know, he was a baby. And I slapped him because he was crying. You know, and I was, that was, I was dying inside because of who I had become. And there was a time that I could never have told you that from the podium about slapping my baby and the things that happened. But, um, but you have shown me how to heal that, heal those memories and, and put them to good use. You know, I love that part and I'm going to try to remember how it goes in that part to the family afterward in the big book that says, cling to the thought that, that in God's hands our dark past is our greatest asset. Something like that. I'm not sure I got the words right. Our, our dark past is our greatest asset. And this has been true for me. The things that happened and the things that made me so ashamed have been the, the greatest asset to me. 
because I have learned how to share those things with you, and I know that when I share them with you, that they will help you, and when I can help you, then I am helped. And that's, uh, you know, that's the beauty of this program. We have an opportunity every day to share with each other and help each other, and then when we help another person, then we are helped. But I'll never forget that Christmas uh, Eve. And when we went home, I had had whatever it was, my little tiny, crummy little dry drink, you know, that had just brought me to my knees inside. And I turned to my husband when we got home and I said, uh, I can't go on like this. I'm going to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And he kind of looked at me and he said, well, that's okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had been doing the little thing with the pamphlet in my drawer at work, reading those questions, is AA for you, or do you have a problem, all that crummy literature they leave around, ruins your drinking. <laughs> and then there were these people who worked for the alcohol program, and they'd come in every day and ha, 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 they were laughing their heads off, telling one funny story after another about how they drank. And I thought, my gosh, these guys are crazy. But they... But they felt good. I, it didn't take me anything at all to look at them and see that they felt completely different from how I felt. And they were talking about the same thing that I was doing. And they seemed to be comfortable. And they were in the, and you know, they were in the field because they loved the life that they'd found in AA and they wanted to share that and they had, you know, they uh, were counselors and stuff stuff like that and I just thought, wow, what kind of a deal is this? And I'd been watching them. So when I said I was going to AA, I knew that I was going to go where I could get some help because they'd already helped me. But what I didn't know was that my whole life was going to change. But I mean my whole life was going to change. I went to AA and, uh, you know, in my arrogance, I wanted to look like a psychiatric nurse coming for a visit. <laughs> <laughs> And I will never forget that day that I went to get dressed to go to the AA meeting. And this is how sick I was. I had a client who had come to see me at the mental health center. It was clear to me that she had a drinking problem. So I called her up and I said, I think that it would help you to go to AA and I'm going to take you. <laughs> so, and I couldn't have told you that from the podium for quite some time. I was so embarrassed about that. But this is how arrogant I was and how little I really wanted to look at myself. And I dressed myself up and I tried on three or four different outfits, trying to see which of these outfits would look the most counselorly. Counselorly, I don't know. And, uh, but, I, but the thing that couldn't escape me is every time I looked in the mirror, I had that ruddy red, red neck, you know, and that uh, puffy face and the dry hair. And every time I looked at that part of the outfit, I would think, well, they're going to know it's me. So eventually I sort of try to look under my hand at how the clothes looked and not look at the face because uh, I went to Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't remember anything that anybody said in particular, but I do remember in my arrogance looking at some guy who was wearing cowboy boots and a cowboy hat and a denim jacket and thinking, well, what do I have in common with him? You know, here I am, this counselor. And he opened his mouth. I'll never remember what he said, but everything that he said went right to my heart. And before the meeting was out, I was sitting there with tears streaming down my face. And some very kind person who could see my arrogance came up to me and said, well, are you here for yourself or for a family member? <laughs> she was so nice, very gentle, you know, very gentle. I, could, I had to say I was there for myself, and then I said, oh. <laughs> you know, and for the next nine months, here's how I did AA. I'm going to tell you how I did AA in the beginning so that no one, none of you will do it this way if you're new in the program. <laughs> For the next nine months, I went to one AA meeting a week. I drove from our little shack way out by the river all the way into town, 20 miles. I went to one meeting a week. I cried the entire time, and then I drove back feeling better. You tell me how it works. I don't know. I'd sit down. They'd say, would you like to share? I'd say, oh. 
you know, the tears just streaming down my face. There was one gal that stayed and got sober with me, and she said, I remember you. You cried a river. For nine months, all you did was you cried, and that's the truth. And I had so much shame and so much embarrassment and so much remorse, and I hated who I'd become, and I'd drive into town, and I'd say, I'm a lowly alcoholic. You know, it just seemed like, what a sentence. You know, I was a lowly alcoholic. And then I'd sit through the meeting, and something would happen, and I'd, ride home whistling a tune. I don't know, you figure it out. And uh, and uh, nine months into it, I, you know, I hadn't done anything on the steps and I hadn't uh, gotten a sponsor and I just thought I would probably shoot myself. I just thought I would probably shoot myself. I couldn't go on living this way. I couldn't drink and I couldn't seem to live not drinking and I had nothing to replace all that negative, miserable stuff. and. One day at work in my job as a psychiatric nurse, I started to cry. And I said to one of the alcoholism counselors, I needed some help. And he gave me a phone number and he said, you call this woman. And it took me three days to get up the nerve to call her, but I finally called her. She, uh, she was a woman who had you know, some 16, 17 years of sobriety. And she became my first sponsor. And I want to tell you that the difference between how I felt before sponsorship and after sponsorship was like night and day. And to this day, I am so grateful for good sponsorship. The first thing I did when I moved up to Illinois was I got a, a new sponsor, and I just love her. And I talk to her every day if I can, or every other day if I can't, every day. Uh, and I sponsor people too, and I know that for me, the magic in this program started when I shared heart to heart with one person who said, I've walked where you walk, and I know how you feel, and this is what we're going to do to get to, uh, to get better. And she was one of these great people that said, uh, she, she said, uh, we're going to take the steps one by one. We're going to be sure that we've done each one carefully and thoroughly before we go on to the next. And uh, we're going to, uh, when we're done going through all 12, we're going to go through them again. And that, uh, to me, is the way to have that fabulous spiritual awakening. And uh, it was not without pain, and it was not without anguish. And each one of those steps presented some new kind of pain for me. But if I ever thought of balking, I was out of luck, because she was one of these who just kept going. You know, we are just going to keep going. And she taught me how to take that searching and fearless moral inventory. And she taught me how probably it took my second or third trip around before I got around to how to really sit down on the sixth and seventh step and look within and ask if I'm entirely ready to have God remove the defect. And if I'm not entirely ready to identify what's standing in the way of having that entire readiness. And then to go on to ask in the seventh step. Because the first time I saw the sixth and seventh step, I thought, what a piece of cake, man. I don't want to go back there anymore. So, you know, okay, God, take it. And I didn't know that it was going to be a lot harder than that. Uh, but she showed me, she showed me how to sit down and really take those steps carefully. I had a um, uh, a great uh, beginning in AA, and I'm so glad I did. I she uh, she taught me how to get on my knees and use prayer uh, immediately. And I am so grateful that she did. We didn't wait around until we got to step 11. She taught me in the beginning, you get up early, you get up earlier than you want to get up, you spend some time with a big book or whatever else you want to read, and you get on your knees and you ask God for a day of sobriety. And you don't get on your back and go to sleep while you're praying at night. You get on your knees so you'll stay awake and tell them what's really in your heart. And she taught me how to do this, and I'm so grateful. A year and a half into my sobriety, my husband uh, got involved with somebody else, and the whole thing blew up, and I was a single parent with uh, two-year-old twins. I look back on that now, and I know that the reason that hurt me so bad was I didn't know what pain was until, you know, until I was sober. I'd always managed to uh, stupefy myself and, uh, and uh, nullify pain with alcohol. Um, but I was... Uh, I was in excruciating pain, but I have to say, and I had a gal who I'm sponsoring recently ask me, well, did you ever think of drinking? I never really thought of drinking because no matter what it felt like, I knew that what I had found with all of you was better 
um, by far and away, whether I had a husband or not, than anything that I'd left behind when I, uh, when I started this new way of life. So I'm grateful for that. I stayed on in North Carolina for a number of years, uh, and uh, I didn't stop moving. I don't know. I just uh, That's a bad habit, you know, once you get into the habit of moving. It's a hard habit to break, and even though I was dragging little kids along, I was uh, I seemed to move from one thing to another. But I uh, stayed pretty much in the same area and, uh, and worked my program, and uh, eventually she got me into sponsorship and, uh, and uh, service work. She had served as the uh, delegate to New York some years before that, and so she was very much a service-oriented sponsor. And uh, I have to tell you that uh, that was uh, another leg of my journey that really blew beautiful new life into my program. If you're if you find like things are a little routine and you're getting a little complacent, look for a little piece of service work, and uh, it will breathe new life into an old program. It's just wonderful. And, uh, and those were good years for me. Those were good years for me. I had a lot of learning to do. I had to learn how to live with myself. I remember hearing somebody in Pennsylvania say once, uh, you know, in your first year you learn to live without alcohol, in your second year you learn to live with yourself, and in the third year and thereafter you learn to live with other people. And I had a lot of learning in all those areas. I think it took me two or three years for each leg of that uh, that. Uh, those uh, areas of learning, but uh, but they were good years and they were busy years, and I learned a lot about relationships during those years. I didn't uh, I didn't know that I was uh, that I was as sick in the area of relationships as I was. I was one of those who uh, got into the uh, got into the relationship as fast as I could, and then had to make up the relationship to go with what we were already doing. You know. It, it, uh, <laughs> wasn't uh, it wasn't healthy and it wasn't good and I had to do specific air, uh, inventories around that and I had to do specific inventories around various aspects of my life and I had to do a lot of uh, praying for the people that I resented I resented my ex-husband uh, a great deal for leaving me with those two little kids just when I thought here I am getting sober I thought he'd like me you know but somebody early on had said to me well sometimes they come along with you sometimes they don't and he chose not to and I had to get over that resentment and I had to you know I was talking about this with a gal I sponsor about uh, praying for the person you resent uh, she's got a she's got a an amend she's been having trouble making because she's still so mad. I said, you know, I prayed for that man for three solid years every day. And you know what? I got up three years later and I was free of the resentment. Now, I know that three years sounds a long time, but when you think of being freed up from that awful feeling of wanting to uh, hurt someone or feeling wounded by someone or having to drag with you all the negative feelings of things that happened in the way past, you know, that freedom is a beautiful thing, and, uh, and it's well worth praying for someone. I'd pay, pray for him another, you know, 10 or 15 years. I don't know if I'd pray for him 16, but, you know, <laughs> I have my limits. But, uh, but it has worked for me in, in so many uh, resentments uh, and so many difficult relationships. And some of them aren't resentments. They're just difficult relationships. My family relationships were scarred and... and uh, and limping from years of my own, you know. It's not as if I went in and abused my family. I just never went home at all. I never called anybody. I never wrote anybody. I missed everybody's birthday. I'd blow into town once a year. I'd try to drink up as much of their booze as I could. I'd see if I could get any spare cash, and I'd go out again. Well, you know, families get a little tired of that after a while. And you've probably heard this, but I thought it was funny when I'd heard it the first time. Uh, yeah, of course you came from a dysfunctional family. You were in it, you know, <laughs> and that was me. I mean, I how, how could it be? How could it be a functional family, you know, with a person like me in, in it? And uh, and I had to pray for them because they they resented me. They didn't understand what was wrong with me. And then I had to pray for them because they wondered why I was in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, why is she doing this? She was always full of strange ideas, you know. I, and I resented that. And, uh, and I wanted them to understand instantaneously. And you know they didn't, you know. And I had to pray for them. And, uh, you know, I, I had so much learning and growing to do. And I'm so grateful for those years that... Uh, 
and I raised my children in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, they're almost 16 years old now, and uh, they've known AA people all their lives, and they are good kids, and I'm very proud of them. And I never forget the time when they were very small that I had gone out to get a babysitter knowing that a girl that I sponsor was going to come right over and then she and I were going to go to a meeting. So I ran out, I left them, Jonathan was in the tub and Sarah was, I don't know what, reading a book and I said, I'll be back in a few minutes, Jill's coming in and I'm going to go get the babysitter and then Jill and I are going to the meeting. Okay, Mom. And so I came back with a babysitter and Jill looked at me and she said, she said, your children are a trip. And I said, well, what happened? She said, well, I came in the door and Sarah came running over and then she ran to the bathroom door and she said, she shouted in the bathroom, Jonathan, Jonathan, Jill's here. She's from AA. Maybe she can help. <laughs> and Jill said, so I said, Sarah, well, what's, what's the problem? And Sarah looked at Jill and she said, well, Jonathan's in there taking a bath and he said he was feeling a little lonely. You know, that's how they saw Alcoholics Anonymous. This is how they see alcoholics today. They both at different times in their little lives told me they were going to grow up to be alcoholics. And I said, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I had to tell them, you know, this is what alcoholism is. It's not all these good, just not all these great people. But they are beautiful. They are beautiful children. And I owe the fact that I have been able to be a good, stable mom for them. I owe that to you because you taught me how to take responsibility for the things that I needed to take responsibility for. Um, so that was good. We moved, we decided to move up to Chicago a couple of years ago, three years ago. And at that time, um, I had full custody of those kids and had for a long time. Their dad visited them on weekends. And uh, they, uh, when I got ready to move, they, um, I had, had all the things in the, and had told him the year before that we would be moving. The day that we moved, he uh, brought legal action against me and put a restraining order on me. And here, so here's this moving truck full of stuff and these kids waiting to go. And here we are in court sort of trying to duke it out to find out whether or not I'm going to be able to leave the state. Then they said I could leave the state, and, but I couldn't... Uh, but I was going to have to come out, come back for a custody hearing because he was going to try to get custody. Now, this man loves his children, and I'm very grateful for that, and they've had a good relationship. But he, um, but he has never wanted them to live with him, so it was related to the fact that I was um, leaving the state. And the only reason I'm telling you all of this is to tell you that not to tell you the awful thing that happened, and it was pretty gruesome. I don't, you know, these things are never pretty, and people dredge up all kinds of old stuff. And though I was sober at that point, 11 years, there was a lot of talk about my alcoholism, which was kind of crazy. But, um, but the thing that I wanted to tell you about that experience is that what I learned about prayer during that time just ha is so powerful is that I can be sitting in, in what felt like the pits of hell and I can feel okay and comfortable by praying for the people around me. And I prayed during that time for, um, for my ex-husband. I prayed for his parents who had all the money that paid all the lawyers to drag us through court. Um, I prayed for the, for the judge and every, um, I would just go around the room and look at each one of these people and I would say, wherever he is, God is. And wherever she is, God is. And wherever, you know, my ex-husband is, God is. And wherever his girlfriend is, God is. And wherever his witnesses are, God is. And, you know, it just, uh, it took me up and, and, and sort of above all the anger and all the hurtful things that were happening. And it reminded me that no matter what happens in my daily life, that, um, that there is someone else in charge, and that is uh, the God of my understanding, and that's the God that I, that I came to know through you. I told you I was raised in the church, um, and since I have been sober and Alcoholics Anonymous, I've gone back to the church. But I found the God of my understanding 
through all of you because you showed me that it was okay with a history like mine, being the kind of person I was, it was okay to talk to God. And I truly believe that the many years that I was out there drinking and I called myself agnostic or whatever, um, that I never talked to God because I felt like he wouldn't want to hear from the likes of me. And you taught me that that was not so. You taught me that I had only to stop holding on to all that shame and that guilt and I only had to start asking him for help and that he would, and that he would make right any situation that I had to deal with. So I'm very grateful for that, uh, that piece of learning. Um, when I moved up to Chicago, as I said, I got a sponsor right away and, uh, and you know, threw myself back into the program, got some service work at the district level, which I uh, have really uh, appreciated, and, uh, and that was good. I've been sponsoring some, uh, some great people. Another story I'll tell you, there are, no, there are so many good stories in Alcoholics Anonymous, the things that God does for us in our lives. I had sponsored a woman for about six years in North Carolina, and before I ever thought of moving to Chicago, she moved to Chicago. So we stayed in touch over the phone. I still sponsored her long distance. And then some, about a year after she moved up here, my sister was finally brought to her knees by this disease and called me in North Carolina. And I said to her, you know, you know, we talked for a long time, and then I said, get a sponsor, get a sponsor, or at least begin talking to people. And then I gave her this woman's phone number, and she called her up, and this woman became my sister's sponsor. And now, you couldn't think it up. Now, you just couldn't think it up. You know, it just, uh, these are the kinds of beautiful things that happened to me in my sobriety. Um, uh, most recently, I, um, I returned, as I said, to the church that I had grown up with, and the... Uh, and the pastor there that came there after I'd been there a couple of years turned out to be someone I'd gone to high school with. You know, when I was taking that long orbit into alcoholism, he decided to become a minister. So I said, well, isn't that nice? He certainly is a nice man. And, uh, and uh, we were friends. He was, uh, he was uh, the pastor of the church. And I, you know, for about a year, we just uh, saw each other coming and going. And who knows what happens you know one day the lights go on and all of a sudden you look at somebody and you think well there he is you know and he was thinking the same thing and uh, you know we dated for a year and then uh, we got married I have to tell you that I know what it is now to love somebody but I learned that from my sponsor you know I I knew before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous what it was to be in heat you know <laughs> and I knew how to act you know I knew how to act like somebody who loved but I did not know how to love and I had to learn that from my sponsor and my sponsor was a woman who's in her 60s when I met her and I thought what can I learn from her you know and I only had to sit still long enough to experience the love that she was willing to share with me by sitting with me and listening to me and sharing back with me who she was, that I could learn what it was to love without expectation of return, you know, without any strings attached, um, to love somebody. And I truly believe that I could not have learned that had I not come to you. Um, and so I'm grateful, you know, for, for my alcoholism. I used to think, well, what are they mean by that? I'm grateful to be an alcoholic. It took me some years to understand that had I not walked that path and gotten to you, I would not know what I know today, and I would not have been blessed the way I am today. Um, I was trying to think of a little four lines that I had heard a speaker say once that kind of sums up what Alcoholics Anonymous is for me. Um, she said, uh, I'm grateful for my troubles because they teach me courage. Um, I'm grateful for my afflictions because they teach me compassion. I'm grateful for my disappointments because they teach me humility. And I'm grateful for my weaknesses 
because because of them I feel the need of God. And it's kind of been that way for me in Alcoholics Anonymous. All those things that were the worst things that I thought could happen to me in my life have turned out to be my greatest assets. I have known the joy of sharing what cut me down and what hurt me so much with another person and seeing the hope in her eyes to know that you can walk through that and you can come back from that and you can have a life that's full and meaningful. So all of those things have turned out to be assets for me in this program. I think I'm going to wrap it up. It looks like everybody's hot, hot, hot. I mean, I'm kind of hot, but I always expect to be hot up here. Um, you know, I don't know how I would thank you all for this beautiful program, except to say that um, it, has, it has been everything to me to come to rooms like this and talk with people like you. Um, and, I, and I wish for you all the best in this program. If you don't have a sponsor, get a sponsor. It'll change your life. If you're not working the steps, throw yourself into the steps. It'll change your life. These are the things that have worked for me. And I guess the last thing that I would say is that I love you. <laughs>